All right, welcome back to the Done Right Podcast. I'm your host, James Dunn. We've had some crazy times since the last time we spoke with snowpocalypse hitting the South and knocking out a majority of Texans' power. We saw finger pointing from the leftist morons like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez pointing out the need for the Green New Deal. She must have tweeted this from her closet because when she heard a noise from three blocks down, uh, the leftists never seemed to fail to seize an opportunity from catastrophe to power grab. And many of us saw this right through it, including our good old buddy, Ted Cruz from Cancun. Today, we have a special guest to talk more about this. Adam Kurznewski, a former member of the Trump Treasury and Commerce Departments and a former U.S. Marine. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And so, Adam, how does a Marine get into the Treasury and the Commerce Department? How, what was that journey like? So it's a very long story. So I'm glad everybody's sitting down. So um, after I got out of the Marine Corps, um, I had applied for college at uh, a couple of universities and uh, I was took a job as defense contractor. And then the following week, I after I took the job, I got um, a, a phone call saying I got admitted to Columbia University in New York City. So I was like one of the first around, maybe not the first cohort, but one of the uh, early cohorts who actually got to go into an Ivy League school coming out of the military. And then uh, from there, I worked a little bit in finance, I interned a lot at various financial institutions, and I wasn't very happy with what I was doing. Um, politics was going on, um, a lot of things were happening really fast. You know, the uh, President Trump went from candidate Trump to President Trump, took and uh, really kind of really sparked a new energy in me to work in politics. So. I left finance, uh, became a political consultant, and um, I also at one point worked for the Census Bureau. Well, the Trump administration needed uh, Republican experts on the census, and I was one of a handful of people out there who had any uh, understanding of the census out there who were Republicans. And I get the phone calls from the White House saying, hey, we'd love for you to come down and interview with us uh, one, uh, this following weekend. It was actually, it was actually about a year ago, um, now, uh, today, actually, I had my interview because it was right around CPAC time frame. And then I uh, went to work at the Trump administration, went to work at the Commerce Department, um, and then uh, focused on some various things there, mostly Census Bureau. Um, and then I went over to the Treasury Department to uh, work on various projects over there. And then obviously the things that happened around the election happened. And uh, now, you know, now I'm here speaking with you. Sounds great. So, Adam, um, we saw a lot of what happened with the Texas infrastructure crisis, and we saw a lot of finger pointing and blaming from leftists like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad talking about this points out the need for a Green New Deal. And that uh, if they had green energy in Texas, that all this would have been avoided. Like, what's your take on that? So Texas is very heavily invested in green energy, probably to the detriment of themselves, really speaking. Um, you know, here's the thing is, you know, like take it back uh, as a broader picture real quick. Whenever someone tells you green energy or a green new deal, what it is, is a form of economic austerity. So like most people don't know enough economics. You really don't need to necessarily know the terms. You can Wikipedia it. But basically, if you want to know why Europe is so stagnant, it's been about a period, uh, several very long periods of economic austerity where governments uh, uh, increase the regulatory costs of doing business, as well as um, increase taxes and things like that, which really kind of prohibits uh, 
both individual freedom as well as our as well as people's ability to actually make money. And so, you know, with this rhetoric around the Green New Deal, well, Texas is very invested in green energy. Um, it went from being uh, only a fraction of um, its power, you know, only a decade ago to uh, roughly uh, 12 to 12 uh, percent of the uh, regular power grid output to almost a quarter, um, depending on the time of year and the winds at the time. Um, and so they're very invested in it. And that's the thing is they're they were over invested in the green energy projects. Absolutely. And so, Adam, with that, I guess for me is we've seen a lot of this turn into talk about like cap and trade and how it's going to push things into uh, green energy and um, and pushing all, almost our entire infrastructure over into, you know, wind, solar um, and other renewable energies. What what what's your opinion on that? So, um, you know, this is like part of this macro program to really deindustrialize the United States. You know, there's a limit to how much wind and solar can take over um, an energy grid uh, power output. And it, I have a little bit of different take than most conservatives would. And, um, you know, like wind and solar in a place with good geography and good weather for it, it's okay uh, during normal circumstances. But the reality is that the one of the key advantages that um, any sort of uh, oil, gas, nuclear, uh, power plants have is that they can just burn more fuel in an emergency to uh, increase power output. There, there's a limit to how much more incremental wind you can get out of a wind generator. And and that's the thing is it's not within your control. And that's kind of what we saw happen here in uh, Texas is that they you can't, you can't ask the wind generators to do more than what they're built for, which is to harvest the wind. And because of all this investment being directed out of um, you know, natural gas, the natural gas lines weren't prepared to handle the volume of gas demands all, all over all of a sudden. And it was a perfect storm of just not knowing um, how far the uh, energy, the power grid of Texas could actually be pushed. No, absolutely. And so, you know, I, I've heard of, I, I just came from Texas, so I saw a lot of that as well, where, you know, the push from Austin liberals, you know, to push into green uh, energy, um, it, and replacing it with something, I guess, a lot less reliable than, you know, natural gas or, or petroleum based products, and especially using some of these petroleum based products to fuel their their um, their wind turbines. So, like, for example, in this freeze, we had to see uh, a lot of those petroleum based products used to unfreeze all the uh, wind turbines um, with all that investment going into wind and um, renewables, how like. I know you talked about how bad it's hurt infrastructure, but like how badly, like where does the impact so like not drilling, not getting the permits or where, where is it actually hurting them? So, you know, the thing is for energy infrastructure development, it's a very complex process because the real estate, you have to first think of it as a real estate deal. Um, and that's pro part of the reason why President Trump was skeptical about wind is because he saw it and he's like, look, this is too good to be true. There's clearly a lot of cheap money being thrown at something that's um, not necessarily effective, you know, and that's really, you know, like, yeah, when, depending on where it is, when can be effective, when cannot be effective. But, um, you know, when you're talking, what happened in Texas, and this is the, uh, this is the bad scenario of um, the combination uh, of too much renewables and not enough infrastructure development around uh, fossil fuel burning uh, technologies is that 
when when it came down time for to replace the energy uh, normally get produced by wind with the natural gas generators, they couldn't. The natural ja gas couldn't upstream pull enough gas out of the ground and put it into the pipes to keep enough pressure in the pipes so the uh, wellheads didn't freeze. They, and because the, uh, they couldn't push enough power, uh, gas, natural gas, into these generators um, fast enough, hard enough, with the existing uh, with the existing abilities to uh, increase or decrease the amount, what it, it created a depressurization, which basically ended up shutting down the generators before they were actually officially shut down. Um, and that's what happens with these things. This is why, you know. Wind and solar can be unreliable, but the question is, at the end of the day, is when you have too much of it and there's a system-wide catastrophic failure, which wind and solar are more prone to do just because they are not self-contained distributed power centers themselves. They're usually in large-scale geographic blocks. You end up, um, you end up creating an overstressing of these fossil fuel plants. Um, and it, we also almost saw this in California, too, in the 2020 summer. Uh, California is much more solar than wind, um, and the uh, solar panels were working very effectively in uh, there, except for in the um, parts were affected by forest fires. But you know that wasn't enough. The amount of electric, the electrical demand in California is so high, and with those panels not being able to produce because of the uh, smoke, you're you you were almost taxing uh, California to its very brink. But California also has the entire West Coast power grid to rely on um, for uh, to borrow power for, from. Texas does not. And uh, Texas wasn't able to borrow uh, electricity from um, the East Coast as a, uh, because of old infrastructure there. So in an ironic sense, the deregulation of energy in Texas has made it such that um, all, the, all the dumb money and the smart money is going into wind because they can make a lot of money off of it, not because it's a good idea or a bad idea. Absolutely. And so I, we saw a lot of uh, conservatives, you know, you talked about California a little bit, a lot of conservatives um, talk about Newsom and how the infrastructure policy in California has led to a lot of blackouts almost consistently every summer during these fires. And then we're starting to, we've seen liberals on the left start to criticize um, the governor in Texas for the same thing. As, are those two situations different? Or, and if so, how are they different? So there's like, in terms of the politics of it, uh, California just doesn't want the bad optics of building new uh, power plants and all that. There's a, uh, there's a nuclear power plant right off of I-5 right next to Camp Pendleton, California, which helps power the uh, grid. And I think it's actually partially serviced by the Navy because it's, um, it's usually refueled at sea because they don't transport... Um, I don't believe they transport nuclear material on highways. I mean, I think that might be well beyond any scope of my knowledge though. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, they don't want the bad optics of it because they have to, they have to be so committed to the ideological wokeness. And um, that's the thing is, you know, that's, uh, but with Texas, you know, the part of the problem is that you have both the Republicans and the Democrats in Texas, primarily looking for easy money capital coming into the place. You know, Texas is a Republican state still. You know, it's not the legislature necessarily dictating this. This is also the um, Texas Land Commissioner's office and the governor's office that are driving it. And this is, um, you know, one of the criticisms. I'm, I'm at CPAC. I'm in Orlando, Florida uh, today. That's why it looks like a hotel room behind me. 
And one of the criticisms I've heard from some Texans, and uh, you know, I'm willing to say because I, I I don't work in the Texas uh, GOP establishment at all, is that you know Abbott and Bush, um, the governor and uh, the Texas Land Commissioner, are very much into bringing in a lot of um, left wing money, uh, no matter what it is, and that's part of these things. They see these real estate deals, which are wing uh, generations, and they there's uh, tax revenue. There's uh, revenue uh, based to the power grid. Um, who whoever is the actual owner of the land gets to uh, sell power to the uh, to the Texas State um, Energy Company, ERCOT. So there's a lot of really weird things that are going on with the Texas uh, story. That's also uh, unique to Texas because California just can't. There's just too much grift in California for them to actually pull off uh, some sort of like shady land deal like they could do in Texas. Absolutely. And so, Adam, what what's the future, I guess, like if Adam's king of the world for the day and he gets to choose how the United States, you know, goes forward on their energy infrastructure. Um, you know, we have a lot of people on the left that want to move away from fossil fuels, a lot of people on the uh you know, right, that are really fighting uh, this Green New Deals, especially after what just happened in Texas. Um, where do we kind of go from there to kind of build our infrastructure, especially, you know, it, it really is a national security threat. Right. And this is one of my big passion projects is infrastructure and reindustrial development of the United States. Um, you know, like it's it's got to be multifaceted because like whether you're a libertarian who complains about uh, the Fed printing money um, or if you're uh, kind of a neocon who wants to go to war with everybody. Like all your problems are solved, but because they're uh, back in the day, because the United States had a manufacturing base that could just do the things it wanted to or needed to do. Right? We actually just don't have it. You know, like in terms of like steel production, the United States is not number one anymore. But it by far, it's actually like a uh, the the single largest steel producer is a. Uh, Indian, British, German conglomerate based in Luxembourg, which is weird to say because no Luxembourg produces no steel. Like it's a globalist project, right? And so, you know, when you're talking about this, you have to, it's got to be a larger project. So there is some value to the green energy stuff because it's potentially like the windmills could potentially be less expensive than other things, right? Long-term projects. Um, you can build them and you can take them down fairly easy versus a normal power plant. There's a flexibility potentially there. But at the end of the day, it's law of thermodynamics. You still have to heat something up to make it move uh, a turbine really, really fast so you can create uh, power out of it. And the United States needs that power and needs industrial development, reindustrial development to make these infrastructure projects actually less expensive, as well as to be able to do more with it. You know, like when there's a time. I, before President Trump took office about, um, I guess maybe 2014, where there's this big push by some Republicans to make uh, the United States a net oil or energy exporter, natural gas um, and uh, oil. It's like, well, you know, back in the day, like we used to just use our own fuel to feed our own economy. Why don't we, why, aren't, why isn't our industrial economy growing at the rate to actually match that? And that's the that's kind of this globalist project here you have is it's trying to suck out the middle class the middle class makes its money off of the material economy not this tech sector stuff not the financial sector stuff and not the retail service industries like uh you know like being a barista or something like that not that there's something bad about 
having like these entry type jobs, but you're supposed to be able to move on to more uh, actually productive uh, parts of the economy. And um, they're making it, it's a deliberate effort to deindustrialize the United States. They want the United States to be actually as weak as possible. And this green austerity, this economic austerity mixed with this, um, you know, environmental fanaticism is literally going to be the driver of it. They're going to punish Americans for uh, being successful as hard as possible. No, absolutely. And so, you know, we saw a lot of the uh, of these middle class jobs moving over into China and India and um, other countries that I, I guess really don't necessarily need it as much as as we do right now, especially with, you know, 800,000 people just filing for unemployment last month alone. Um, where where how do we bring back those jobs? Um, you know, Donald Trump is doing a really good job of making those trade deals. Is it going to take another conservative uh, deal breaker or not deal breaker, but deal maker like Donald Trump um, to bring those jobs back. And is it realistic for the United States to try and reindustrialize again? Or is that period over? So I'll take the first question for the second question first and first one last. And so the United States has to reindustrialize or it's not going to be the United States ever again. Um, you know, it's going to be a colony. So when you trade soybeans for computer parts, or computers from China, you're behaving like a colony does. Um, you know, like one of the big crises of like the of the entire uh, lead up to the Civil War wasn't just the slavery question. It's also like cotton was economically unproductive in the United States because there's wool uh, plentifully grown. It was sold in Europe for uh, to high um, to high level. Um, fabric weavers for uh, nice, uh, nice clothing in Europe. It, and like there would, would be resold at higher rates. That's what a colony does. And that was something that Henry Clay debated the uh, Southern secessionists endlessly about. It was like, why don't you pick your own damn cotton? And why don't you, uh, you know, like go be, uh, make actual things instead of just acting like you're part of the British Empire again. So the United States has to reindustrialize. Otherwise, we're going to slip. We're going to turn into a bigger version of the Great Britain. You know, Great Britain is barely, you know, a, a shadow of its former self. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, what where what does what does the uh, what do I do if I'm in charge of things? Well, you know, and what did what did uh, President Trump do? And uh, you know, he started uh, the uh, brass tax, which is uh, and endless multilateral negotiations these multilateral agreements are where you have to trade as a bigger player you have to trade more in order to get smaller players onto the field because they can uh take advantage of their small size against you because they have less that they can give you in exchange for uh these deals so bilateralism helps a lot but you know we really have to have a serious consideration about um you know tariffs again you know uh trump was the first president since oh um maybe Grant that had uh, took tariffs really seriously um, as a means of uh, national policy. Uh, we have to uh, talk about, um, you know, we have all these international finance development banks at, at the Treasury Department that we oversee that uh, finance infrastructure projects abroad. Why don't we have a domestic finance uh, development bank? If uh, roads and bridges are falling apart, the federal government should just do direct loans to it at that point. It's it makes no sense that we're doing it overseas for bridges that 
no Americans going to cross except for on like uh, extremely expensive Instagram vacations. Um, and then finally, you know, there's uh, we have to think about being creative like the our ancestors did in the 19th century with uh, figuring out ways that we can um, really kind of help the industry uh, industry re redevelop. You know, there's a, there's some you have to think about subsidies in a real way and not in the way that the green energy lobby tends to do, which is, um, you know, kind of like this backstop against um, economic non-feasibility, but rather like you take a, a known quantity product like a semiconductor that you know that it's something that we need. And you look at, um, okay, how can we protect this industry as we develop it from uh, these foreigners who can just mass produce it because they have they literally run on slave labor. So, you know, you have to think about these types of things in a very outside the box thing. And that's one of my passion projects. That's why I'm here at CPAC is to uh, uh, try to convince uh, conservatives against all the dogma that they've heard that they have to take up these issues uh, on behalf of the American people, because otherwise no one's going to ever say it again. You know, uh, you know, what happens, you know, what happens in like, you know, so President Trump's going to be with us for a very long time. You know, he's going to, his, his influence is going to be with us, but, you know, 10 years, 20 years down the line, are we going to go back to this kind of um, war against everybody, you know, send all of our jobs overseas, um, and then have another forever war in a place that like we really shouldn't be in in the first place? Are we going to have this new woke austerity Green New Deal thing, whatever it's going to be called uh, in the future, where we're uh, now attacking countries that neocons didn't attack because like they uh, because of like some sort of social policy we disagree with now or, or because they're a dictator when you know, it's like when we used to not care about that stuff at all. So like we have to be really thoughtful about these questions because otherwise, um, you know, we're not going to be a country anymore. We're going to just be a territory by which people can loot. No, absolutely. And so maybe uh, you could probably explain this a little bit better, but uh, you touched a little bit on tariffs, right? Yeah. And I hate when, well, not hate, but I hate when my liberal friends bring up tariffs because it doesn't seem like they never can understand the, the benefits of tariffs because they, they see that Donald Trump puts a tariff in, something gets a little bit more expensive, and they're like, oh, no, well, the tariffs made it more expensive, and it's driving all this out of... But the long-term costs of not having tariffs, can you explain that? Like, because it drives jobs out, it 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 really kills the middle middle class by not having tariffs. Right. So, like, if... Like, there's a lot of ways I can explain it. Like, um, you know, for the... I'll give... I'll throw one for, like, the libertarians out there who uh, might be watching, and... So when you think about if one of the big complaints is the mont uh, constant use of the Federal Reserve to uh, print money, well, when you have a negative uh, balance of trade, you have to um, you have to be um, producing currency. You have to be you have to have some inflation so you can continue purchasing goods abroad um, and then bring them here. Uh, you know, if you bring that more to um, more to par uh, parity you don't have to inflate the dollar quite as much, you know, if you're, and so like you end up spending less long-term in inflation costs to your dollar. And then when you have more jobs here for that per uh, people, those dollars stay here longer um, as they are, uh, they're kept into the economy. Now you can overdo anything, right? Like, um, you know, North Korea is probably one of the best examples of over really overdoing it in terms of protectionism, but you know, 
at the at the end of the day, it's like we're not. That's not what we're talking about. We're not trying to abandon the world. We're trying to maximally express American power. Um, and so you know, like it's like oh, um, something's gonna be a little bit more expensive. It's like okay, buddy. You know, like now everybody's a little bit richer. Sorry, like um, you know, people have benefited from it. And um, and like talking about the liberal friends, and this is one of the one of the really silly parts of it, you know, they have these Marxist professors going around telling them that like, oh, they're here for the, to support and unite with the working class, but God forbid if we pro uh, do anything that prevent, protect the working class jobs, because then that's just racism, apparently. You know, it makes, it's literally nonsensical. Like any sort of real Marxist would be like, the, the hell are you talking about? But they also don't really exist anymore, so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, uh, the biggest thing with keeping the middle class jobs is when you have that industrial, um, you know, jobs, it's the the upper mobility is skyrockets because it doesn't take a degree to go get a skill based job. You to go work, work in a trade, you go learn up and then you become a manager and then become a senior manager or whatever. And it becomes a lot more upper mobility for people. And as we've seen the industrial and the manufacturing jobs leave the United States, we've also seen that big disparity between the middle class and, and uh, you know, the 1% that they like to, to, you know, brag and bitch about. But um, so another thing is our infrastructure is huge national, national security threat, uh, not only on the energy sector, but like, for example, our servers um, we've seen, we're seeing a lot with this with Amazon web services uh, we're seeing it with big tech as well um, with Parler and um, how they're dictating the market on how um, social media websites are, are working um, based off of their just percent, just mere percentage of servers own. Um, does the United States need to like raise more money in infrastructure for servers and, and more technical infrastructure or just physical? So that's a really good question. And there's a, a huge component with uh both uh, physical server and um, digital uh, connections uh, that needs to be uh, more robust. Also, uh, cybersecurity and how that relates to cybersecurity. You know, the United States is like if you think of it in kind of a tech sense, is like a giant database, and we have very poor controls and connection uh, controls around that information because it's for the most part in independent actors. Um, so yeah, we definitely do need to really start rethinking how we're doing. Uh, server farms and how we're doing all the connections in terms of uh, digital information. But, you know, I, I wish it was something that was in a little bit more in my foray. But, you know, it's something that I know when I was at Commerce Department, they were starting to look at um, seriously. And, you know, that's one of those things that I hope should be bipartisan is that this kind of um, digital infrastructure uh, is going to be taken seriously. But, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical, not because that there's um, that, you know, all Democrats are bad or something like that, but rather like the priorities of this uh, Biden administration aren't really thinking about how do we create infrastructure to help normal people? It's really kind of a question of how do we, you know, graph the system? No, absolutely. And so I, I guess for me is going forward, you know, we've talked about bi bipartisanship um, with the conservatives. What what do you think should be the first step for conservatives to move toward like a bipartisanship um, for like, uh, you know, a better infrastructure deal? Is there something that we could probably get with them um, that'll work 
um, going through because I, I know going for it's been so split lately and just to get something through maybe on something like something like infrastructure where I don't feel like it's as heavily as polarized. Um, is there something that we could do that's more bipartisan on that? So, you know, if you told me if you asked me like if this is 2014 or earlier that there would probably be a yes somewhere. But right now, so one of the things that had been going on in the Democrat Party for a while is a lot of the old guard who um, were working class Democrats, or at least, well, paid lip service to that, um, are gone for the most part. Um, you know, when Jim Webb um, uh, was left the Senate, so did a lot of other uh, old, like, blue dog Democrats. And, you know, blue dogs, that's one of their big things was supposed to be infrastructure well they've gone all the way into world politics you know this is something that um i talk about a lot is you know the liberal liberalism is an economic system too right neoliberalism is an economic system like there's these are things that the world politics go hand in hand with the economics here and the fact that the these new left wingers are so committed to international corporations and the uh, as well as their social policies are adopted by international corporations to tell you something that there's no on the other side there's almost no play at this point for any sort of real uh, real form reform for manufacturing or infrastructure um so like you know eventually i think the the way to make a bipartisan thing is to convince the republican party to adopt it because it's going to swing purple voters and that's something that the democrats should uh, cynically at least take up because it's going to uh, get those people going. But, you know, I think after the shovel ready jobs thing of uh, back when President Obama was, uh, took office and did his infrastructure bill and it went literally nowhere, I really don't think there's any sort of room for anybody right now to have a real discussion about a bill relating to it. Yeah. And you talked a lot about uh, those, those purple voters. Um, you know, we're starting to see. Um, the Biden administration really alienate those uh, purple voters with those union like, you know, pipeliners. How is that going to have do you think that energy policy is going to have a huge impact on their middle class base in, in the future? Um, are we going to start to see more and more unions like go red because of it? I think there's a lot more red union voters out there than people give credit for. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of union rank and file people are. Um, naturally disgusted by their leaders they they don't even know how they actually became leaders of their unions they, they're like corporations in and of themselves and um you know they they want the union protections but they don't want the people who are actually in charge of the unions now um but you know like the thing is like the uh democrats have largely gutted their own middle class voters they they really talk so there's this thing called the schumer strategy and i don't know if it's just chuck schumer's idea but it might be it, it's a brilliant idea. So there's actually some lenient, there's reasons to believe it's Schumer's idea. The Democrats base is very, either uh, very low wage or extremely high uh, bonus uh, capital gains based compensation, right? And so, you know, for the long time, they relied on industrial workers um, and um, union votes. Well, they still have the service unions, but they're losing the um, blue collar union voters. They're losing a lot of the middle class. They lost the small business a long time ago. And so where where do they get their uh, pick up their votes? Well, they, they've been targeting suburbs, uh, suburban culture uh, extremely heavy, heavily. They're looking for those lower or sorry, upper middle class 
lower upper class uh, voters who are fiscally conservative but socially liberal because like the you know like they know like at some point they can uh, appeal to some sort of meme that they saw on Netflix to uh, for a reason why they should vote Democrat against their own economic interests and unfortunately it works that's the that's the cold reality is that you know people who are overly socialized in Netflix type culture and Instagram will can and will buy into like the, this rhetoric and uh, they won't then these are the people who are most anti-fragile for all the economic nonsense Biden people are doing right now is that they're less affected directly by it because they have enough money that they um, aren't affected by it and they live in the uh, probably the nicer suburbs where it's not really a concern. They never really see anybody work with their hands in the first place. So it's a really, it's a huge conundrum. And so I, I, I genuinely think that for the most part, whatever is considered middle class today, it's primarily Republican at this point or uh, completely purple. Um, there's very little committed Democrats left. And you can see that just with the uh, number, numerical demo and demographic breakdown of the Democrat party is that they just lose voters in like really large swaths in one place to pick up in the areas that they think are going to be much more productive long-term. Absolutely. And so uh, I love to pick your your campaign political mind. Um, I've also did, done some politics. I, I used to be like a data manager guy. And right. so I'm starting to see some things where I'm, I've just throw at a point, I, you know, you just throw out the data cause you're like, well, I don't know what's happening with this, but like, for example, we're seeing the recall in California with Gavin, Gavin Newsom, which is not something I would have ever expected from California. Um, my hometown of Nevada, Las Vegas, um, we're starting to see a lot of service industry workers who, you know, Steve Sisolak has shut down the service industry for so long that they're starting to become Republican. Um, are we going to start to see a reshifting of, of politics as we know it over the next couple of years? And, do you think the Republicans take it back or, you know, we, I've heard talks of a Patriot party. Um, you know, obviously you're at CPAC. I, you know, I've seen some people take it seriously. Some people not take it seriously. Where do you think we go 2022? So I take the Patriot party thing seriously because I don't think you should do it. Um, if I, if I didn't take it seriously, I would um, not have an opinion on it. And that's the thing is uh, look, the Republican party is your vehicle and you know, you have to live in the real world where it's like the the libertarian wing managed to get crazy effectiveness yes they have uh, multi-billionaires helping them but they just showed up to things and that's a very effective tool and they produce their own books you know so like if you want to actually have a MAGA movement you shouldn't be relying on old guard people to talk about how much they love Trump you need to be talking about the policies that you liked about him and go to these things and um but, you know, in terms of realignment, so this is one of the things like the census is being kind of delayed in terms of being released uh, to the public. And, uh, you know, part of the there's a legal strategy potentially for the for these states to sue the federal government and then the federal government relate, releases it so that they can have some sort of like one up on these states. And then they kind of can like uh, manipulate the way that the census is actually interpreted across the country. But the census was like the Democrats were very worried for a very long time about the census that it could actually mean that they would um, for the next 10 years could quite possibly lose the house. Um, and because just of how the population shifts, 
Um, you know, there's a there's a federal requirement to gerrymand districts in particular ways. And because of the urbanization trend, um, a lot of these blue voters tended to congregate in very blue areas. And so it actually created these uh, districts that are purple, that are just more lean, more red. Um, and so like the potentially the Republican Party could actually have had um, could actually have a very dominant next 10 years in the um, legislature. But we'll see how that turns out. I hope they don't try to adjust it for everybody who was moved because of the uh, coronavirus, because he's, you know, everything's been crazy. But, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, there could be a realignment. You know, in terms of Gavin Newsom, they're trying to do the um, Gray Davis plan that the, uh, happened against him in the recall back in uh, Gray Davis in like 2007, 2008. Um, Gavin Newsom is a real presidential candidate and like he's the one of the most real ones that they've had come up in a long time who's reasonably young and he's dangerous and there's a faction of Democrats uh, but and also the Republican Party who know that um, you know Gavin Newsom would be a very dangerous presidential candidate to be because he's he is charming he's affable and he comes from a very big state with huge donors, you know, but that's the th thing is like, you know, a guy like Gavin Newsom probably didn't want Biden and Harris to win because he wanted to be able to run in 2024. And now that Harris is uh, vice president and could quite possibly be president um, in the next within this term. Um, she doesn't want Gavin Newsom to be able to actually run against her in a primary or or uh, look like a more likely presidential candidate than her. So there's a lot of uh, things going on there. We might get lucky in that Gavin Newsom gets knocked out uh, by the fact that there's a perfect storm of people who don't like him. Um, in terms of people shifting right, I think there there will there will be real protest votes as we move forward with these um, things. You know, this is one of the places where Republicans stick into their uh, guns on. Uh, on you know being like uh kind of laissez-faire with this stuff um is actually starting to work out long term is that it's quite possibly that all these democrats who were complaining about not enough lockdowns are going to get punished very hard for um and overindulged in this lockdown fantasy world and i you know some states like nevada sounds very promising i just don't know um it depends on where everybody's moved uh in the last year you know that's that's the real question you know where where has all the votes uh, moved from since uh, the last election. No, absolutely. And I was, it's funny that you brought up the, the perfect storm with Kamala Harris and Gavin Newsom, because I know, um, you know, that that's just two butting heads and the donors were went out on that one. Um, do you think we see a, I know he's being recalled. Do you think we see an actual um, removal of him from office or do you think California is still going to stay that blue? I'm not sure. Um, so I used, I did some like mild analysis a while ago to prove like why Schwarzenegger could win. Um, and it's because like at that time, not enough Republicans had left the state for them to never be able to win um, a uh, free election where independents swing one way. And also at the same time, um, uh, during that uh, recall election we had uh, in California, they had the Prop 8 uh, thing, which actually moved a lot of uh, Democrats over to the Republic uh, to the Republican side because the Republicans were being called um, uh, homophobic at the time, and like there's a chunk of California Democrats who are like did not want gay marriage in California, so there's a perfect storm there. 
I just don't know what the perfect storm would look like um, in California. It might be this coronavirus stuff, but the reality is like, you know, like the, it, you have to, I, the squeeze has to get worse. I think really, because there's the people who are most likely to leave a state because of economic issues, uh, safety issues, those kinds of things are Republicans. Um, and since in the last 10 plus years, since uh, Schwarzenegger won office, well, like a lot of, a lot more Republicans have left California. So there might, might just not be enough Republicans to have a base against him. And that's, that's, that's the issue, right? There's just, you know, do, do, the, do they even have the numbers right there of people who can just toss Newsom uh, aside? And I, I'm skeptical, but, you know, coronavirus lockdowns, you know, a year ago, I would never have believed them to be this bad. So, you know, like, I mean, like, literally it's 2021 and how many crazy things have happened and it's been what, I don't know, like uh, um, 90 days into it so far. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, speaking of 21, we had some crazy stuff and President Trump is no longer office. There's talks that he might run again in 2024. What's your opinion on that? And who do you think should run in 2024? Well, um, so I'm, I think I would love to see President Trump run again in 2024. Um, it's completely up to his discretion. There's a lot of rumors about it. So one of my friends, he's been uh, a presidential consultant since 2000. Um, and he's one of the last remaining people who've uh, who were part of that old gang of uh, Republican presidential consultants who didn't go to the Lincoln Project. So he's still a Republican. Um, he still hasn't done anything illegal or weird or you know or questionable. And he made this point. He's like, look, every presidential uh, cycle, every loss, everybody tries to play this game of who's going to be the next guy. And he's like, everybody is wrong every time. He's like, like one of the things is once you see this once, you'll uh, see it again. Is that everything? Nothing's going to work the way that you expect it to be. A lot of there's a lot of people on the hill right now who are trying to open up, um, like looking into, oh, how do I get my advantage over this guy, over that guy? You know, like you have a lot of speculation around different senators and different governors running, um, you know, for, and various other um, high-profile figures, but. None of them have any clue of what's going to happen. And like they like it or not, President Trump is going to still have a key role in being a kingmaker here. Um, you know, he remade the party, you know, and the party has to kind of like wake up to the reality that they, the world has changed since 2015, really. You have to appeal to the voter now. Um, and I don't know who would actually be that person right now. Um, you know, there's... There's, it's funny because it's like um, I don't want to like give away too much information because it's like I was told in confidence. But I was telling one person about this one can a uh, potential candidate, and I'm like, look, this person made himself look like a fuck. Go ahead, hey, you're good. <laughs> an absolute idiot. Um, in um, in the uh, uh, post uh, the post January sixth shenanigans uh, by constantly appealing to these like fake principles. Well. You know, losing is not a principle, right? And uh, and just like appealing to Democrat sensibilities is never going to get you another Republican vote. You have a PR crisis. That's what that's called. And these people are need to kind of wake up and smell the roses that the world's changed and they can't play by the same old rule book. 
and I apologize for the almost slip there. Oh no, you're you're good. My uh my good friend uh, Daniel, the Korean conservative, dropped f bomb like 27 times on the last episode. So oh, excellent. Yeah, oh, you're good. You're definitely guy. You know, so no, you're good. Uh, so I guess you brought up the Lincoln Project. They're going to be there at CPAC. Um, what impact has the Lincoln Project, the Never Trumpers? You know, now that President Trump is supposedly you know riding off in the sunset you know what impact do that little section of um i i put in quote conservatives uh have on future elections do you think they come back in to the party or do you think they're gone forever and they're just i don't i don't know what they're doing at this point so um so it's very complicated so one of the reasons why so many republicans um and you can list them and you, they're very well known. The list is very long. Wanted Trump out of office is that if he got a second term consecutively, a lot of them would be just way too old to actually do anything about anything that he was supporting. Right? They, they he would have made them irrelevant just through time, uh, because like a lot of these people are close to the end of their natural life expectancy. Right. And so they needed him out of there so that they could have like one uh, one last dance, you know, in terms of power. So there's a, you know, father time's not kind to a lot of the people on the Lincoln Project. A lot of them are very much older. And so this, in a way, is going to be like um, how they uh, finance their uh, Caribbean permanent vacations. Um, at the same time, none. Of, I don't think any of them come back. Um, I don't think, I think they're going to be too toxic for way too long. I can see George Conway coming back because he he attacked uh, the Lincoln Project really early. But, you know, like the thing is, it's like George Conway is a snake. Like everybody knows that, you know, somebody who is a who flip flops and pretends to be your ally. Then uh, when there's the paycheck comes as your enemy, like maybe you should just learn to like not go on TV and just kind of shut your mouth if you're going to be playing that game. And that's the thing is they. They're, these guys are made money off of being celebrities. So the effectiveness of Lincoln Project, I don't know if it really uh, changed any Republican voters. But the problem is, I don't think they actually targeted Republican voters with their ads. They probably targeted blue voters or purple voters, and um, and soft blues who are like, uh, well, I kind of like Trump, you know. And I think that's that's probably the people that were like the ones that would be swayed by like this. Um, uh, holier than thou, namby pamby, kind of rhetoric that they really focused on. But what's the danger of Lincoln Project? Well, luckily it's imploded on itself. And but they'll give the money to somebody else if they don't all cash out of it. That's you know that's the thing. But it's the first real super PAC that's become an art project for the sake of it. You know, and this is the one of the things that Republican donors don't get is that if you go to Soros or any of these people who are boogeymen at any given time on the uh, right, and you say, like, I want to create this nonprofit or this pack to do this thing, they just throw the money at you. And if you're successful, they'll give you more money. You know, on the right, there's like, oh, what's the deliverable? What's what's the specifics of this? What's that? What's this? It's like, well, like, let me see what sticks on against the wall. Lincoln Project was a real, like, like a... Um, a political consultant and media consultants like dream where they had almost unlimited budget to do whatever they wanted and whatever has come out of that is going to be the dangerous thing because there's all these like soft left uh neo ultra neoliberal uh 
super mercenary uh, organizations that come out of it and had a lot of money pumped into them to, to refine and develop their skills, had better equipment, you know, everything about them in terms of that, their ability to actually produce ads and uh, produce political content. And that's going to be the, the thing that's going to blow people's minds is like, wow, well, Republican donors have been, um, you know, not wanting to do very much in off-season cycles is Lincoln Project thing, which got way too much money to do nothing, practically speaking, for the 2020 campaign, is basically this uh, um, political machine in of itself that uh, can self-finance um, its way until it actually picks up clients whenever it does. And they're going to be able to pick up incredible clients just because of the fact that they everybody knows who they are. They've branded and marketed themselves so well. And, like, really, they didn't... They, like all the criticism of the Lincoln Project has come from the Republican Party because, like, you know, like these people were former Republicans. Um, but the Democrats really still kind of don't really care about the scandal. They they paid a lip service to it and it's kind of over for them, you know? So, like, what happens next? Well, some of the people are gone, the project's gone, but all these guys still have the money and they get to do whatever they want with it. Absolutely. And I, I think, uh, one of the big things I, I would say is uh, the, I guess the Republican Party is getting a lot younger and a lot more exciting um, as a result. Um, you're starting to see a lot more of these candidates like Madison Cawthorn, uh, Lauren Boebert. Un unfortunately, at times like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, where, so with that being said, are, are, do you think, you know, um, the establishment Republicans need to start looking out and that, you know, maybe the Lincoln Project might not be enough for them um, in primary season? And do you think this MAGA movement is going to move into the primary season where we're going to start to see people? I, I know Mitch McConnell just got reelected, but um, people like those establishment Republicans that are going to, you know, have to start worrying about their seats again. Yeah, I think there are, especially the people who have been censured. Those who voted against President Trump um, for the especially for the shenanigans that have happened in the last couple uh, weeks. But. You know, those people are really, they're looking at real threats. Um, I don't imagine a lot of them staying around. You know, one of the things is there's two New York congressmen, for example, who might just be redistricted out of their own district. You know, they'll be, their districts will go from um, swing to uh, soft blue. Um, or either that or they'll have to uh, go against another Republican in a primary. And uh, that's already established. And then it's just a question of, you know, whose name recognition is less tarnished by uh, the goings on. But I don't expect many of these um, congressmen and women to actually stick around who went up against Trump. Um, and I, it's, there's not there's not a lot of reason to, for them to do so. There's some donors out there who will just finance them because they voted against Trump. But there's there's a like to what end? You know, you're you. It's like you're you're literally going against history, and you know. So, like in terms of the freshman class of congressmen and women, um, I think what's got to be talked about is that, you know, when you talk about these these people, it's like you, they put themselves out there, and you know. So Marjorie Taylor Greene touched the sun, as I like to say, it's like, and she got burned by it, right? But you know, at the same time, it's like she hasn't been completely canceled, and so there there's a redemption story potentially there, but. You know, the fact that there's people willing to be that big of lightning rods um, in their brand new Congress and brand new in Congress, and they might have guaranteed that they will never 
really do anything in Congress by sticking to whatever they said or whatever they did or, you know, whatever have you, or just still being wacky no matter who the, uh, what their position is. That, that scares the establishment that people are not willing to act like them um, when they get moved to there. They, you know, it's the, it's the whole entire thing of like, you know, uh, the, when, when Rome fell, like the people in Rome were basically no longer Romans and the barbarians that showed up had a completely different like lifestyle of living on the Roman frontier. They, they were more romantic, the like Roman Romanized than the people who were li living in Rome by that point. And that, you know, their, their barbarous ways was like, you know, the ways that their, uh, their Roman ancestors would be more familiar with, you know? And so like the, the fact that the, as there's a saying, there's things called sky people and dirt people. The fact that these dirt people come into the sky people lounge, the Capitol building and um, act the way that there's, that they act around other dirt people scares them because they're like, Oh wow, these, these guys aren't afraid of our, uh, saying mean things about them in the, behind their backs. And it's like, no, they're not. So, you know, like when I, I tell people like, look, you, it's okay to not like a politician. It's okay to like a politician. But at the same time, it's like, it's not cool to just bandwagon against uh, a politician just because they said something bad or mean or dumb or something like that. It's like, sometimes it's okay to not have a personal opinion about these people and kind of enjoy the fact that they gave somebody high blood pressure for a week. No, absolutely. And so, you know, kind of in closing, we'll start a little silly, but you've been in the Marines, you've been in politics. If you had to go back and do it all over again, where do you, where do you want to go? I know um, both of them are nuts. Well, so like, um, you know, this is the, this is the sad thing about the whole entire thing. It's like when I, I was, I was having drinks with my buddy, um, not going to say his name, um, at his, at a, uh, party, his birthday party and, uh, in a cabin in the woods. And, He's like, you know, he's like, I, I envy you. And he's very successful on Wall Street. And he's like, um, I envy you because he's like, you know, like we went to Afghanistan together and then we be we became friends and like he went to school with me and all this. And he's like, you know, you're actually doing things to actually defend the country per se more than what we actually did in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. There's certain things I would probably try to do better. But at the same time, it's like, you know, that's how you learn to be good at uh, hard things later is like the things that you kind of mess up around the edges. And, um, you know, I'm glad to be involved in politics. I'm glad to be doing this. I'm glad, you know, I'm glad that people are listening to my message about reindustrialization of the United States. It's like, you know, the only people that cared about it like, four years ago were um, nut jobs, the regular working person and Donald Trump. And now it's become mainstreamed, you know. And like, and libertarians just don't know what to do with it. And it's hilarious. No, absolutely. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. So if people want to follow you, get more information, um, just see what you're doing, where they, where do they go? So I'm only on Twitter right now at, at real Adam K. Um, I'll eventually create a website and all that. Um, but I don't, I have no plans to do that anytime soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam, for coming on. I appreciate Thank it. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the Done Right Podcast. Make sure you follow us at Done Right Podcast or on Instagram, um, Done Right Show on Twitter. Um, and then make sure you go to nrnplus.com to subscribe. It's only $9.99 a month or $74.99 a, a year um, and really helps out independent journalists like us. But thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And thank you so much, Adam. Thank you for having me. It was a good time.